This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? As already discussed many times in this podcast, Abraham's story in the book of Genesis is anything but linear. For every move in obedience to God, there is a counter-move in disobedience. We will see this play out for the final time in the Abraham cycle before his full character actualization in chapter 22. What is the point of all this? Precisely to constantly bore into the ears of the Israelites and by extension the hearer that they are not special in relation to the Gentiles and that Abraham was once himself a Gentile and acted outside the bounds of the Mosaic law. So what made him righteous? Simply put, his trust in God's promise, and this is the key point, his change of behavior. This isn't about blood. Let us be attentive. Starting in the text... From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So this chapter is obviously paralleling the episode in Egypt, and this wife-sister narrative will show up again with Isaac. What is interesting to note is how this seems to be bookending Abraham's story. In the structure of Genesis, this story occurs right before the birth of Isaac. I think this is incredibly important to remember because all of this has a natural flow. 
I would posit that the text is drawing one last illustration, a mashal, to demonstrate the, the scriptural flaws of Abraham as to not make him a culture hero and to uphold the righteousness of the outsider. This is the last section where Abraham will be acting against the command of God. It's interesting that his place of sojourning is in between Kadesh and Shur. Kadesh means sacred or holy. In Arabic, you have Kudus, which you know essentially means the same thing. And then Shur means the place of the oxen. So it's another image of shepherdism. He stays in a land called Gerar, which sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for sojourn, which is ger. Um, you can actually hear this wordplay in the Hebrew itself, so let's listen to it. To say, and he stayed in Gerar, is wa yagar ba Gerar, right? You can, you can hear it play out in the Hebrew that way. Yeah, these place names are also associated by the scriptural Hebrew with the story of Hagar. When Hagar runs away from Abraham and Sarah, a messenger of Yahweh finds her and talks with her by a spring of water on the way to Shur. And after the messenger talks to Hagar, the text tells us that the well that she was at is between Kadesh and Bered. So I think the mentions of Shur and Kadesh, as well as the Hebrew word ger for sojourner, occurring in both of these stories are supposed to shift our mindset so that we hear them as Meshalim centered on the reality of the sojourner. It's like Star Wars. Tatooine is a desert planet full of scum and villainy, so any time a Star Wars story takes place there, which many of them do, our mindset shifts to that gritty space western mentality, and we then hear stories of Lone Star heroes or ruthless bounty hunters turned into selfless leaders or space wizards exiling themselves to meditate on their sin and become a beacon of light once more. But when we go to a planet like Coruscant, a city planet, our mindset shifts again to hear stories of political strife or city life. So here in this biblical story, our mindset should shift in response to the word choice of the text in order to be prepared to hear stories about, quote-unquote, the sojourner. Hagar was a sojourner, that's what her name means, and we heard the story of her sorrow. Abraham was a sojourner in the story of his visit to Egypt as well as in this story, and we have already built a context for Abraham as a character because of the previous stories, so we have a behind-the-scenes look into how Abraham is not acting righteously. What is interesting, however, as I will discuss in a moment, is how Abimelech is instructed to respond to his oppressive visitor. Yeah, Rowdy, I like how you, uh, how you used Abimelech there instead of Abimelech. Abimelech is, is technically more correct. But anyway, this character is definitely worth discussing. Uh, for one, he's a Philistine, which, you know, that's a group that ends up being one of the most fierce arch rivals of the Israelites. Um, we, we, you know, we see this in the books of the prophets. In fact, the name Abimelech is used for all of the Philistine kings. And this name means my father is a king, which is obviously not good. But more important than that is the fact that the Philistines, by and large, represent the Gentiles as a whole. They are Greeks. Now, this is made clear by Ezekiel 25.16, where the Philistines are tied to the people of the Greek islands. The most clear that the Bible is on this subject is actually in the Greek of the Septuagint, where the Philistines are rendered as the 
allophili. So in Greek, if you if you know Greek, this literally means the other kinds, or you know you could you know uh, philos. You could you could also say the other race or the other tribe, right? It is the other people. That couldn't be any more clear, and that's really interesting to me. Um, I I did a little search, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was somewhere like the transliteration of Philistine in the Septuagint is used only like a dozen times. But the translation of Philistine into allophilos, or something similar to that effect, occurs over 260 times in the Bible. That's pretty interesting. Um, you know, and that's something that you would never get from just the English you know, so that's why the Septuagint is really interesting to study. So if we take the composition of Genesis as being at least redacted in the Hellenistic period, as many scholars are progressively doing, this section of the text is really, really striking. For one, this is the first time that the Philistines are active players, and this is essentially their introduction in the story. How striking is it that their introduction is one where they are acting righteously? The Bible is really funny, you know, in how it structures events in this way. The admonition of God towards Abimelech in verse 3 is extremely important. He is threatened with death for taking someone else's wife, a, you know, a major offense. And he did so unwittingly. If we think ahead in the biblical story, this is the same sin that David commits against Uriah. But in that sense, it is even worse because David did it on purpose. Abimelech is justified in his ignorance, and it is due to the self-righteousness of Abraham that he even got into this mess. Yeah, I think the interaction specifically between God and Abimelech is really interesting. Essentially, what we have here is an image of repentance. Now, I realize that it doesn't seem like that at first for those who think repentance is nothing more than apologizing to God for sinful behavior. But the Hebrew is very important in helping us understand actual scriptural repentance. In Hebrew, there are two primary words that are sometimes translated to repentance— one of those is the word shub, and that's the one that we have here for when God commands Abimelech to shub, or return, Sarah to Abraham. The word is likewise used when the prophets entreat the people to return to the Lord, or when the waters abated after the flood, they shub, or returned to their natural state. Normally, we think of repentance as a state of mind, right? Like much else of our faith nowadays, repentance is nothing more than an intellectual exercise. However, biblically, it is very practical. If we are to repent, we must return to the correct behavior, and if applicable, return what we have stolen or destroyed. That is what's going on here. The command to Abimelech is to return Sarah, and it's repeated when the Lord tells him that if he does not return her, he will surely die. And that phrase is an emphatic phrase because uh, in the Hebrew, it comes from the infinitive absolute construction, which just means that the verb is repeated twice for emphasis. So it literally says, you will dyingly die. This interaction between Abimelech and God is teaching us about repentance. Again, plain and simple. If a stranger comes into our home and swindles us, even if they are in the wrong, we must deal with them the way God commands us to, which we hear in this story. 
If we take anything that belongs to them, regardless of how attractive it is to us, even if we have been convinced by them to take it, we must return it to them and instead bless our visitor with an abundance of our own gifts. This is the attitude we must take toward the outsider. It's simple hospitality. If we don't, but we take from them instead, we have to repent. We must return what we've taken and make reprimand for the damage we've caused. This is the extremely simplistic nature of biblical repentance. It doesn't matter if you feel sorry. It doesn't matter if you feel guilty. It doesn't matter what you feel. It only matters if you are guilty. And God is the judge of that. And as long as you aren't lying to yourself, you should know better anyway. What you just described, Rowdy, is essentially the message of the gospel. And that's actually pretty uh, relevant because this is the first instance of the Hebrew word uh, for prophet, which is Nabi. Um, now, Nabi, uh, you know, we, we, we tried to look up the, the, the Hebrew, and there's not like a, a lot online about it, but that same root in Arabic, Naba, is really interesting. And this is the same root that uh, the Arabic word for prophet, Al-Anbiya, comes from as well. But Naba simply means news, tidings, or a story. You know, so essentially, Abraham is the spokesman of God and his interaction with, with uh, Abimelech, as we will see at the end of the chapter, ends up being one of reconciliation, one of reconciliation with the Alophilos, the other tribe. I mean, it's really astounding when you when you hear it in the original with the Semitic roots in mind and everything. I mean, it's all right here, and it's, it's extremely powerful. But that's something to, to keep in mind, because when we think of prophet, we've really simplified it down to just somebody who, uh, you know, sees visions of the future from God and then, you know, goes and stands on a podium and starts shouting at people. But that's, that's not what it is. A, 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 a prophet in the biblical sense... Um, is is really multi-layered. You know, for one, the prophet is the, the mouthpiece of God. But in another sense, a prophet is also a judge. A prophet, uh, you know, is, is, is also um, one who uh, reconciles, you know, these, these people. So it's, it's, uh, it's a really multifaceted thing. And to label Abraham as a nabi, this early on into scripture is really striking, especially as we start seeing his character actualization and how we see his uh, peace pact, if you will, with Abimelech um, all in one go. I mean, it's really, really something. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. 
So here it is revealed that Abraham lied about Sarah because he thought there was no fear of God in the land. I mean, that's textbook self-righteousness, right? Because the in, in his mind, the Philistines being foreign to Abraham's God meant that they would essentially act as savages towards him. And really, this is how you know many of us act today. Many Christians have this presumption about how people will behave if they are perceived to be without their God. Uh, it's a very silly presumption to make because no one can tell from the outside who is truly in fellowship with God. And we see this actually in the text because Abraham didn't know that his deity just communicated to Abimelech in a dream, right? So Abimelech did know Abraham's God, just not in the way that it could be known to him. It is also interesting to note that the text reminds us that Sarah is technically Abraham's half-sister, as the two share Terah as their father. This is expressly condemned in Leviticus 18.9. Again, it bears repeating, Abraham was a Gentile and without the Mosaic law. When he married his half-sister Sarah, he was living in Mesopotamia, far away from the land that would be given to the Israelites. This is why Paul argued against the importance of one nationality in the community of faith. Abraham himself wasn't a Jew. The text makes a big deal about this. Abraham and the rest of the patriarchs are fundamentally equal to the other characters. Abraham and Abimelech are both Gentiles as much as they could be Israelites if they choose to be in God's community. Even in the Old Testament, anyone from anywhere can be an Israelite. Remember the mashal of Caleb the dog, who is one of two Israelites from the Exodus to make it to Canaan. One is an Israelite by blood, that's Joshua, and one is by adoption, that's Caleb. It's powerful and impressive. Exactly, we have to read the text functionally. The stories are only interpreted properly through the interpretation of their function. To be a Hebrew or a passer-through is a person's function, just like being a Christian is a function. You are not Christian by blood. I think it's easier for us to understand in that, that modern context. These things do not and never did belong to a particular people group. Similarly, the Levitical law has to be interpreted through its function in the story, not through a surface-level adherence to a law that was never intended to be followed without fault, like the Pharisees of the New Testament. And that's just another example. I know it's not relevant to what we're talking about right now. Uh, but I really like the point you brought up, Blaze. It's really arrogant of Abraham to assume that Abimelech and his people were godless savages. The text provides no evidence to suggest that Abraham had any reason to think this, nor does it say that God told Abraham to ever go down to Abimelech's people. Abraham is totally acting on his own self-righteous accord, and his actions are such that they will afflict this innocent people who have integrity of heart, according to the text. But again, this must be hammered into us. Abimelech is not allowed to respond with violence. Abraham comes into Abimelech's innocent kingdom and seeks to afflict it for his own gain. But Abimelech cannot respond with anger and violence and revenge. He is instructed to essentially submit to Abraham unconditionally. And when our neighbor afflicts us, 
we have to do the same. It's the gospel. Amen. <laughs> All right, so finishing off this chapter, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There is a really interesting difference between this encounter with Abimelech and the encounter Abraham had with the Pharaoh. In the latter case, the resolution was never made, but here they have made peace with one another, both under the witness of the scriptural God. Remember again that in the uh, Semitic root, uh, the, the word peace has this connotation of solving a problem. So we can see how this functionally applies here. This is a big deal, especially since the Philistines were said to be the enemies of Israel, right? As I said earlier, Abimelech allows Abraham to dwell in his land as he pleases, and he ensures the innocence of both of them. The KJV actually has the best translation here. In the Hebrew, Abimelech gives Abraham silver and tells Sarah that her husband is a covering of the eyes of all the men around her, because of this. In other words, it's a very poetic way of saying that she is Abraham's and no other man around her may pursue her. Abraham acts as a veil around her almost. Why isn't this read at weddings? I kid, but this, I think, is egregious that modern translations just say something to the effect that it's a sign of her innocence. I guess, I don't know, they don't know how to make this make sense in English, but to me it makes total sense in the KJV. That's another point. Um, that just completely, though, it loses the meaning because what is happening here is that the Gentile of Gentiles, right, to the Alophilos, Abimelech, acts way more honorably than King David will later on in the story by not only giving Sarah back to Abraham, but making a strong proclamation that Abraham is Sarah's covering so that no other eyes may look at her. This goes way beyond what Pharaoh did, which is essentially just to kick them out. And then at the end, we see that God healed Abimelech and the women of his realm. By this, I think the text means that he completely stopped their progeny and is now allowing it to happen again. Notice the emphasis on the opening of the wombs, which had previously been closed. Again, God is the great functionator of the story. He is in complete control of all parties, and this reminder is paramountly important for the next chapter, which deals with the long-awaited birth of Isaac. This closing passage is a perfect image of the sanctity of welcoming the outsider. Yes, there was strife initially between Abraham and Abimelech's house, but under the scriptural God's authority, peace was established. In the outsider, the visiting shepherd from the wilderness, Abraham, is welcomed completely and wholeheartedly into the land and people of the Philistines. It is a beautiful image, despite the initial struggle, but to quote Parthenax from the Elder Scrolls games, 
Perhaps it is better to overcome the tensions of the evil in our hearts than for us to be purely good without the capacity for evil. The overcoming of strife under God's instruction is what makes this story real, what makes it tangible. Both men initially reacted in haste under their own authority, and it led to disunity. But when God intervened, they were able to bless one another and live in peace. That is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Peace be to all of you, dear siblings. We love you all, and we will see you next week, inshallah. Be good and do good. Goodbye. Streams of the waters of